Hello, Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to episode seven of my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very, very much for joining. I'm, I'm, um, I'm really pleased that you're here, even though I can't see you. I know you're here. Um, by the way, if you enjoy this podcast, it'd be amazing if you could um, rate it on uh, iTunes or certainly subscribe because um, I'm very excited about how many people are listening to it. And um, I don't want to get greedy, but I would like more people to do that. So today is a special that I recorded at the Do Lectures in West Wales last weekend, West Wales last weekend, um, over the 7th, 8th and 9th of July. I'm feeling quite knackered today having been there. The Do Lectures is a really interesting thing. It has about 100 attendees who pay a great deal of money, about £1,500, Um, to come down to West Wales and to hang out and listen to 20 speakers speaking and to do some workshops. Um, I was very honoured to be invited to speak and um, I went down to West Wales on Friday morning and spent two absolutely amazing nights um, down there and some incredible days with about 120 or so incredibly inspiring people. Do was started by uh, David and Claire Hyatt, who founded the uh, clothing brand Howie's and most recently Hyatt Denim, um, as well as their friends Andy Middleton and Mark Shaler. It's a place for um, creative people to come and be inspired. You stay on David's farm. It's a sort of mixture of tech billionaires, people who are looking for change um, and creators, and um, the setting is beyond bucolic. They have this absolutely beautiful, very low-key farm. They have um, kitted it out really well for this sort of event with amazing showers. You stay in a beautiful tent and um, the food that they create uh, to feed everyone is, is absolutely extraordinary. The weather was good. So it's a really nice, really uh, extraordinary environment and um, I had an absolutely wonderful weekend. I urge you to try and go if you possibly can. So I put together a couple of, uh, enough for a couple of episodes I think of this podcast and, and this is the first one. To begin with I'm talking with Dominic Wilcox. Um, if you want to find out about what's most inspiring about him go to littleinventors.com. He gave a talk on the Saturday morning and it was quite simply brilliant. He's an extraordinary inventor with a wonderful, warm and skewed view of the world. And I absolutely loved what he's doing. So I sat down with him on the lawn and spoke to him for a few minutes. And um, this is him. So without any further ado, let's move on to the amazing Dominic Wilcox. I'm lying here at um, the Do Lectures in Wales under an apple tree. Um, Mid-afternoon. Uh, there's a whole bunch of workshops going on around us. Um, and I've just um, managed to get hold of Dominic Wilcox, who gave by far and away um, the best talk that I've heard so far. So, Dominic, just, just, tell, just tell me, if you would, a little bit about, a tiny bit about your background and then about some of the work you've just been doing in schools. Yeah, well, I, I'm born in Sunderland. I live in London. Um, and, yeah, I, it's always difficult to explain, but it's somewhere between art design craft technology um it's i'm on the search i'm looking at everyday things and trying to transform them into something surprising for my own entertainment and then hopefully other people enjoy that but so that was something that you started 
doing when you were a child, was it? I mean, was it, were you a sort of child inventor? No, I wasn't. I was perfectly normal as a child. I painted <laughs> um, model aeroplanes and hung them up, and I painted those little um, lead Soldiers. figures. I used you know, to love little, doing that. Yeah, Warhammer. Yeah. Fantastic. I didn't do Warhammer, I did the plastic ones. Oh, all right, okay. Yeah. Well, I make some bowls that I melt those uh, plastic soldiers from t particular battles, half French, half British, into the Battle of Waterloo, um, big bowls. I've seen your bowls, I didn't realise that. Ah, right, ah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but I was perfectly normal, you know, you wouldn't have met me and thought, he's going to be creative. I, had, I must have had a funny personality. I think Did it's the personality that's come out. So when I look, so just to, in order to kind of describe your work, when I look at a lot of your illustrations, they remind me of sort of David Shrigley's work, which right. is looking at things askance. Would would that be? I mean, is that really what you're doing? When when you, not whenever, but when you see something, are you thinking? I, I just can see that in a different way. Are you? It, it's not conscious, presumably, is it? I think creativity for me has to be proactive. So I think we naturally switch off looking. You know, we can get, we, we get sucked into this day-to-day -day way of thinking. And actually I sort of have to remind myself to keep looking. And then if you'd keep on doing that, it becomes a natural instinct to be on the lookout. So it's like, it's like having a third eye, like a third creative eye. That is when you're talking to someone in the pub or, or you're walking down the street, you're observing and looking out for possibly something interesting that might connect with something else you've seen previously but, put but them you are, it seems to me that you see things that other people don't see uh, well I think they're right express, in front maybe. of it I think we all see them <laughs> we don't we don't notice them <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I think it's just about looking closer or slowing down I'm quite a slow person I always remember at college people would be running around doing projects at a fast rate, like trying to finish the project. And I'd be like sitting, like apparently not doing anything, very slow. But then I'd, I'd do it really quickly at the end and, and it would be good. Yeah, okay. You, you know what yes. I mean? So it's not like it's the so you're like the quiet the person who says a really clever thing, having not said anything. <laughs> Those people have always really annoyed me because I'm really gobby and I just sort of speak away. And I oh, think oh, I wish well, I was clever enough to do that. I think that. it's just different paths we take and we maybe all get to the same place but um, yeah mine's always been the slow path but then I look back at all of the work and I've done so much work but at a, I think it's just like trying to be quality over quantity I'm not a quantity person but there are some people I've met who are creative and highly uh, showing exhibition galleries who like just churn it out but they hit on brilliance what I think is really impassioning at the moment is this extraordinary schools project. So can you, yeah. can you tell me a bit about how that started? Yes, I'd not, never done a project back home. I started back home. I was inspired by this tutor called Charlie Holmes who showed me some inventions at Sunderland University and challenged us to come up with our own. And I found I could do it and I enjoyed doing it. I've been doing it ever since. But anyway, I'd never been back to Sunderland. I'd left, I went to Edinburgh College of Art and lived in Japan, then London. And um, yes, yeah, so this was the, the return and I, I asked 450 school children, primary school children, to think up and draw their own inventions. Over 90, I did 19 two hour workshops over two weeks and um, then collected 600 invention drawings 
and then I asked local makers and manufacturers to make the best or funniest or bonkersest ideas into real things. How did you persuade the manufacturers to do it? You just literally knocked on doors. People liked the idea and they said, oh, can I be involved? I was on the radio uh, talking about it and a fibreglass company said, oh, we've seen that. Can we be involved? Okay, you great. Know, so yeah. it was just yeah. word of mouth. I didn't actually know makers in the area because yeah. I've been out of it. So you just had to turn up and kind of make it happen? Word, yeah, asking around. And then you just I, we gathered about 12 to 12, 13 makers of plastic or ceramics or glass. And then they picked out the ones that they were interested in doing, the ideas. So they, they were enthusiastic, obviously. Yes. Then the children that were selected, their ideas, some brilliant ideas, those children met with whoever was going to, whoever was going to make them. So the children communicated that idea in more detail. And then the makers had the job of like making it into something uh, real. And yeah. And then you put it in an exhibition. And did the kids see it before it was in the exhibition? Or did they? Uh, the, well, some of the children visited the workshops and the, uh, the factories to see it in progress. Um, but a lot of it was at the exhibition opening where the children from the schools visited right okay and then and then they'd see uh, what do you think do you think that this is something that that art schools might i mean do you think this is something that actually might become part of the curriculum i mean i ask that for reasons i'll come to in a minute but do you think that 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 the schools are understanding the value of this type of creativity well schools i mean it, it it's a complicated big issue you know governments valuing creativity what is the value of creativity and I think it's been undervalued a little bit. It's been sidelined, oh, you know, maths, maths and English. It, it's a narrow, narrow curriculum, but deeper, that's what they say. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed yeah. to a broad. Well, I would say, my goodness, you need a broad, the wider, the better. I understand it, you know, and it gets competitive. They compare league tables with other countries. And oh my goodness, the Chinese are so ahead of us on mathematics. Yeah, We've yeah. We've got to compete. Yeah. But I think, you know, what made Britain great was its creativity and its innovation and it's uh, in the in the past and, and that was built on um personality our, our personality and um way of thinking and a sense of humor and yes uh, and fearlessness you know, to an extent fearlessness yeah. yes and um that makes us different but so why do we want to be like other countries you know but, um, and then this this so this project has grown real legs and yeah. and you've actually spoken at the un I did, yes. I, I, I was... I mean, that's absolutely unbelievable. What, what <laughs> yeah. happened there? Uh, that was uh, the World Summit on Innovation, and I was asked to speak. And, um, yeah, and I went along, and I thought, well, what should I speak about? Well, I've just done this project, and I thought, right, I'm going to just talk about that. You only got, like, five minutes or something. But, yeah, it was in the General Assembly rooms, which is like something from um, Star Wars. <laughs> you know, and you, you stood behind the sort of, behind the lectern behind with the, the emblem lectern on the front. with the emblem and, uh, yeah, and the people in front of you with all of the microphones to translate. And, um, yeah, it was quite a nerve-wracking experience, but I got through it. And it's now starting to really spread. It did. So the initial Sunderland project got a load of internet. Uh, it went around the internet. Right. Went to, apparently it was popular in China, which I didn't know until later. And then people started emailing saying, oh, this is interesting. This is a good way of getting children interested in, you know, creativity and invention, science and engineering. And so can we do it there? So we decided, the team that worked on it decided, right, we should turn this into an ongoing thing. So we've called it Little Inventors. There's a website, littleinventors.org, and children can just upload their invention ID and we give positive feedback. 
Amazing. You know, and, um, and then we'll pick out ones every now and again that we think that's a hilarious or brilliant idea and we'll find a lot of maker to make, make that. It. How, it's absolutely wonderful. And do you think this mm. is going to consume your life? Well, that is, <laughs> that is quite a possibility. So I need to design it. I need to surround myself by people. Mm. I already have got Catherine, uh, who has got years and years of experience in creativity and education. Susie, who's um, got a PhD in collaboration between artist and industry. And then I've brought in a more business-minded guy, Will, you know, to, so I'm like trying okay, to build, okay. yeah. do the jobs that I don't want to do. Yes. <laughs> you know, that, you surround yeah. yourself by people who are better than you. I, I, I absolutely. Yeah. I think so. Yes. I know my limits. Yeah. You know. Yes. Well, you don't seem to have many limits, but I'm glad <laughs> that you do know them. Yes. Okay. Well, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank Dominic. you. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, I was invited to speak, and I spoke for um, exactly 20 minutes. You're given a very precise slot um, at about lunchtime on Saturday, and I spoke really about the good life experience and about the. Um, the trials and the tribulations. I think that's how I can probably best characterise it of putting the festival together. And um, I thought that you might like to um, hear just a, a few extracts from that. I'm not sure the recording is particularly good because I didn't have the microphones pinned to me because I had other mics on me. Um, but I really enjoyed talking. And although, of course, it's quite nerve-wracking speaking for a large number of people uh, when they have paid a, a great deal of money, um, I enjoyed it very much. So here's a little bit of me. Keris Matthews, Steve Abbott, her husband, Caroline, my wife, and I established a good life experience three years ago. We started it with absolutely no experience whatsoever of festivals beyond Keris had been a performer at them and we'd all obviously been guests or punters at them. And it has been an unbelievable task. We had virtually no money to start it, so we've had to be really, really careful and really rely on the support of other people to make it work. And um, I think you probably all know, in fact, that if we had had a lot of money, it wouldn't have necessarily made it any more successful. But I do think it's worth, it's worth saying that we've done it really, really with small budgets. It's called the Good Life Experience. And wh why did we call it that? Well, post the um, financial crash, I, I was toying with this sort of notion of, of the good life. You know, what, what, what is the good life? What do we want from our downtime, from our work, from our, from our family? And... I had the sense that people had probably had enough of, of or, or certain people had probably had enough of sort of endless screen time, of cheap consumer goods, of, of, of a lack of provenance in what they were doing, a total disconnect with craft, the craft of making things. And they probably were just not, a lot of people felt they weren't um, spending enough time really thinking about new things and ideas. And I've been, I've been working with a lot of these things in my businesses. My businesses are really to do with craft and to do with provenance and to do with food. Um, Steve Keris's husband and I had been in the music business together um, in the 1990s. He was one of the really nice guys in the business. And I bumped into him in Rough Trade Records in, in West London, which is right next door to where I have a shop and a cafe. And amazingly, he recognised my voice, although we hadn't seen each other for sort of 25 years or so. And um, we had coffee a couple of days later, and I said, look, I've got this idea for a festival that I want to do, and I want it to involve craft and food and the great ideas and ideas and books, but I also want it to have a music dimension. I don't want it to be a music festival, but I want it to have a music dimension. And it turns out that he and Keris had, um, had also wanted to start a festival. The Great Outdoors bit is interesting. Um, I don't think I mentioned this, but my wife and I wrote a book called The Family Guide to the Great Outdoors, um, which is a kind of, I suppose, a do 
the great outdoors with your kids um, for Random House in 2012. It was actually spectacularly unsuccessful, but it was nice to do. Um, so we felt confident that we could bring an interesting lineup to the areas that I've just described. And Keris has the biggest digital music show on the BBC. She was also in the band Catatonia, good Welsh band. I think they sold three million albums. And Steve, her husband, is a manager principally of um, classical music. He manages Max Richter, amongst other things, and Lung Lung. So when the four of us came together, the Good Life Experience was born. And our aim from day one, our simple aim, was to do something excellent. And I think that isn't to say that what we'd done before hadn't been very good, or perhaps even some aspects of it excellent, but we really just felt that all we could really bring to this was excellence. And how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself principally in curation. Now, I think curation has become a bit of a wanky word, but, I, but, but bear with me. What we do is we make sure that everything is chosen by us. Every single, you know, the pizza guy, the beer, the wine, the way the place looks, the bands. And we've got a long way to go with this festival, and we may genuinely not make it work financially. It, it is unbelievably hard, but we're doing things excellently. In the first year, we had about 1,200 guests. and the second year, we had 2,500. Last year, we had just under five, and we'll grow a bit this year. But three weeks before the first launch, so we were three weeks before our first edition, we'd sold 300 tickets. And we were in this unbelievable situation of literally staring ruin in the face. And I was speaking on the phone and saying, should we give up, should we give up, should we do it? But we did it. And then miraculously, Keris was interviewed on Sky News and on the BBC about the festival. And we sold another 1,000 tickets in those last three weeks. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've had a close one there. Um, we've had plenty of other mishaps along the way. The second year was, after, I mean, it sounds so crazy, um, but second year we had not appreciated that all two and a half thousand guests would turn up on the Friday night at roughly the same time. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And, I mean, and, and actually one of my daughters here who was, who was right in the thick of this, but we, um, you know, the roads were totally blocked, someone crashed into someone else. I got my children in the road directing traffic. The police turned up and said, how dare you get the children in the road directing traffic? And then to compound things, we'd sold 135 bell tents to about 400 people, you know. So they were kind of low-level glamping. And we had a volunteer team showing people to their tents. And they just completely disappeared. And so the consequence was there were people wandering around going, I don't know where my tent is. I don't know where my tent is. And we had to get in a truck and go down to a local, and this sounds almost too good to be true, open late camping shop, buy whatever tents they had, including the ones that were erected in the shop, get them back and put them up in the half-light. But by rolling up our sleeves and firefighting, we managed to get through it, and you know, it, was, it, was, it was a success, everyone left happy, and, and I think that's you know, hard work, hard work, hard work. Someone said, I, I, Dominic, I think, said earlier, you know, you just got to work hard. And we have no full-time employees on this, so we did it. Last year, we had real problems with the um, council's health and safety people who, I think, misunderstand what we are. There's a sort of scare about music festivals. There are a thousand music festivals in Britain. And the truth is, the vast majority of them, a lot of them are wonderful, but the vast majority of them involve, you know, taking drugs, getting your shirt off, getting your football shirt off, getting down the front, you know, being leery. And um, we're, we're, you know, we're not into that at all. Um, what we are, interestingly enough, is, I think, the friendliest festival you will ever go to. And, and I, I don't know how many of you have been struck by this, but I always felt that Glastonbury was a really, really friendly place compared to any other festival. I've been to, I've been to I don't know, hundreds of festivals. 
And, and actually, this friendliness doesn't... It's very, very simple. Like you've clearly achieved it here. You just have to look at people, meet them with your eyes, and welcome them. And then I characterise the friendliness as spreading like a sort of benevolent virus across the weekend. It's just people like, oh, I get it. I can be friendly here. And um, that, that's, that's an interesting thing. Talking of challenges, um, we have had lots of minor challenges. The biggest challenge that we've had, and this has been really interesting, is how four opinionated, experienced, and probably quite capable people work together. So I think there are very few companies that I'm aware of where there are four equal partners. Kara, Steve, Caroline and I all have 25%. Um, and we all, we all work in very different ways. You know, we work at different paces, we communicate in different ways, we think of different things, we have different areas of expertise. And although we are all genuine friends and we are all working in the same direction, God almighty, we've had some fights. Um, and, and it's partly, of course, because we don't have money to lavish on projects. So, you know, Keris will want to pay this band to do this and I want to put up a tent over there. And I think I, I've always been an advocate in my life of having a partner in business as in life, that actually sort of challenges you. Um, but I have to say, this has been, this has been on another scale. And, um, and, and I think, you know, this is not a negative thing. This is genuinely not a negative thing. But I think it's, it's a really interesting lesson for me, age 53. You know, I've done all this, this sort of interesting stuff in my life. I've kind of... Learning how to put your foot down and how to back off are extraordinarily challenging. And, um, and, and, and we, you know, that has been, that, that's been interesting. I mean, I suspect we're better for it, but it's been an interesting challenge. Um, there's a whole load of talk about, um, about founders in these sort of things. And, and, I mean, founder, like, get over it. It's just, you just sort of thought up the thing. The thing that's really been interesting with us is that we have got an amazing team. So I have all these people that run, you know, bars, restaurants, accounts, marketing... And they are the absolute backbone to this. And, and I know someone was speaking yesterday about, um, about, about team. I mean, this whole team, almost none of them came to work for me when we had the festival. And they've all taken it on unbelievably kind of loyally. They're like, yeah, I get it. People have responded really positively. I think people can sense the excellence. I mean, we are, I'm, I'm really at pains to point out we're really genuinely not there. This is not something we have done it is something we're doing. But I think people can feel the real passion and commitment. I don't even know why I'm doing this. I'm simply doing it because I just, I just want to do it. I really like it and because I can do it. And I have a sense that, that all of the people who are coming... I mean, my view of the world is that 99.99999% of people are fundamentally great. And I think that our guests are, are, are amazing people. And if we can do something for them, that we, they kind of know we're doing our best. You know, and not just like we're doing our best, we're doing our best. Then I think that they're responding accordingly. After my talk, um, I asked a few people what they thought of it. And um, I was quite surprised by the reactions. Here are some of them. It's so nice to meet all you guys. And, and you know, uh, congratulations on your amazing ping pong thing but um what do you think of my talk well unfortunately charlie i thought that the talk and uh when you told me all about it last year no last night was actually not such a great sell but i think the event will be amazing and i am coming on that basis i didn't get it uh, i kind of like what the guy was saying but i thought he was a bit of a dick to be honest i can't really remember it uh, so so what do you think of my talk uh bonkers 
Uh, what do you think of my talk? Yeah, it's difficult to say. Really difficult to say. Okay, so... Yeah, okay, so I've got to get better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Charlie. Do, 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 I haven't yet, you know, kind of really found anyone who liked my talk. Well, I'm sure that's very disappointing for you. So I guess it's something you can focus on for next year. Like, how can you make it more uplifting and more engaging and read, maybe read the room, you know, and inject a lot more humour into it. I didn't just want to speak to the people at the uh, heart of the Do Lectures, so I also tried to collar a few of the attendees along the way. And um, Tara, my daughter, was with me. And so uh, I sat down in a vegetable garden with her and another attendee, Becky. And I just asked them for a few of their reflections on the weekend. So here they are. I was just telling Tara um, about how I found the Do Lectures and it was like a really roundabout way. I was doing a uni project making a bike helmet that I wanted to somehow give it a bit of a backstory and so I was googling whether this thing existed and I found the single history tag which is something that David does um, with all his Hyatt denim jeans and he basically gives a product a unique ID number, blah blah blah, it's really cool and it kind of associates men with a, with a product and through that I then found Hyatt denim and through that I then found the Do Lectures and um, didn't realise it was one event where everyone kind of comes together and experiences it together. I uh, thought that was really cool. And I'm at the moment literally just left my first job and I'm about to start a new one. And um, I think in doing something new, it's quite nice to kind of like meet other like-minded people. And Did it's you come quite by rare. yourself? Yeah, yeah, I came by myself. So that strikes me as something really interesting about this, is that, that yeah. people, the majority of people are here by themselves. Mm. So they have to kind of talk to people yeah has that been interesting uh yeah it's been great because i'm actually i'm not really the loudest person i think i probably see myself as a bit of an introvert so it's not something that i would naturally be the first person to initiate a conversation but when everyone's on the same playing field it's quite easy were you nervous mm. when you were coming here um no really? i was really excited and then about half an hour before i started to get really nervous yeah yeah but i think it'll be weird when we go home and then we start talking to people on the tube and then people yeah. are like what <laughs> Have Pipe you, down. Have you, have, and, and have you found, I mean, have, has it been really enlightening and inspiring for you? Uh, yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant. Yeah. The, the conversations that you have, like, it's a whole spectrum of people. And I went to art school, so I found that I knew quite a particular kind of person. And I kind of missed doing sport and meeting people who studied physics or history or whatever else. Yes. And like that natural clash of culture. But here is very mixed, even though it is, a, it is a particular kind of person, obviously, but there's just a lot of backgrounds yeah. and professions. And a lot it's of nationalities as well. Mm. Yeah, and Tara, yeah. so you've, you've come with me, being yes. my daughter. But I mean, what, what's, your, what's your impression of it being? Uh, I think that the conversation that flows is amazing because I think the fact that although once a day you get a chance to kind of separate and do separate workshops the fact that everyone's going to the same talks four times a day i haven't i really don't think anyone misses them mm. and then everyone can come out and talk about the same thing mm. and that naturally leads to people talking about you know how they might translate it into their life yeah and at most things you go to everyone okay i'll go i'll go here for the three o'clock showing of this and i'll go over there because that yeah. thing starts at 3:15, and you Often you all have amazing experiences and you can share that, but you can't share the same, necessarily the identical experience. Yeah, my sense is also there's very little um, hierarchy here. Oh, so, yeah. so little. Yeah, yeah, so you've got some We've billionaire got who's Ale made Giffy. Alex Chung, yeah. yeah. Just yeah. sort of strolling around in his flip-flops, just yeah. looking super casual. And um, but also very happy to talk to 20-something-year-old yeah. people. Yeah, and, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Late in the afternoon on Saturday afternoon, Miranda West and I 
grabbed a glass of wine and sat down on a bench in David and Claire's vegetable garden and had a little chat. Miranda West is a publisher who has created the Do Books series, which are an absolutely lovely series of books. You may well have come across them. Um, they're a very individually designed and very beautiful series of books that also have a strong tone of voice and run across an enormous different um, spectrum of subjects from fermenting to disrupting and wild baking. So this is me and Miranda having a chat in the late afternoon. And how, how long have you been doing Do Books for? Do Books launched in 2013. Right. So we're four years in. Yeah, and you've four published years in. A 15, dozen, books, 15 books. 16 this September. 16 at the Good Life Experience. Yes, with Tom's. I've spoken uh, with to Tom. Tom. Yeah. So I started in academic publishing and then moved to <coughs> an independent press and then more recently Penguin Random House. That was in. left in about 2010 and then moved abroad and then. Uh, Somebody sent me one of the do lectures, so uh, which I watched online. He was talking about books and things like that. And then we moved back from, well, actually, previous to that, that same day. Shall I just? Yeah. Uh, that same day, I, I had a look at the website, hadn't heard of the do lectures, loved this particular talk. Could see it took place in Wales. I was born in Wales. Who was this talk? Who gave Craig this talk? Craig Mod, who's an American uh, designer and commentator, but he spoke a lot about the future of books and publishing the age of the iPad and the iPhone um, and yeah I poked about the site obviously simultaneously had been thinking about starting my own thing had you right company. okay yeah. a bit yeah, yeah yeah you know had an itch that needed scratching um, sent an email that day to the info at address on the website didn't know anyone hadn't been to the lectures just, but I loved the look of it, you know, so it was purely instinctive. Um, and then had an email back that... What, you you sent an email saying, I'd like so, to do some books with you? Yeah, so, well, my email said, um, you know, I've listened to this talk, it's really, really resonated with me, um, and I loved the fact that I hadn't heard of many of the speakers, you know, that were speaking at this event, um, but they all seemed really interesting, and uh, asked if they had considered publishing books by their speakers. And it was just, I just put it out there. And I actually and wasn't really expecting a reply. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you got a reply. I got a reply that day. Amazing. Um, saying, uh, from David Hyatt. I didn't know who he was, uh, but he was the founder of the Do Lectures. Didn't know he had run Howie's. Hyatt Denham hadn't launched at that point. Um, and he sort of said, yes, you know, he's an avid reader, he's a real book lover, he's always sort of thought that there was maybe some book potential but didn't really know how to unlock that um, and didn't have the time to find out, you know, all the sort of expertise. So I suppose I was just presenting myself at that point and it was all very serendipitous. Did you have a... I mean, so what, what's amazing about the Do Book series is this extraordinary kind of connectivity of design. I mean, it's a yeah. very which is very clever from a publishing point of view because it, it yeah. is immediately recognisable, it's very collectible. Yeah. Did you have a vision for that or were you literally just kind of...? Well, I knew in so much as I knew that we needed to have a strong visual identity because the books are physically small. You know, they're all small format paperbacks. They're like, um, I could give you the exact dimensions. It's roughly like five in, four inches by seven, say. Um, 
and so I knew that they would get lost in the bookshops because the market is completely saturated. Um, and we had nothing, you know, we had no sort of budgets, you know, we had no marketing budget, we weren't going to launch with a big advertising campaign. So they kind of had to stand on, on their own two feet. You know, I was going to put them out into yeah, the world and they had yeah. to, you know, be present and noticeable and work really, really hard. You know, the covers had to work really hard. Um, which is, I mean, the covers, you're biggest sort of sales tool because that's yes the, I mean a lot of publishers thing that just change the cover with. and I mean Penguin do it all the time don't they yeah to, to resell a book yeah it's the same person who's bought it three yeah. or four times before well yes yes <laughs> just repackaging content um so we work with James Victoria who's a American designer his background's poster design not book design so high impact very graphic um and I asked if he'd like to work with us to help us create an identity. He had been to the do lectures, and I think he just he did it to help. Yeah. And and, and did yeah. you launch a, a, a I think in, from memory you launched the few to begin with at the Five. same time. Yeah. yeah. And that was kind yeah. of necessary, I imagine, was it? Well, because I knew if we just it was really to sort of set out our stall. Yes, because I know when I first started seeing them in shops, I would be like, oh, what are those? And there had yeah. there been one, I probably wouldn't have ever noticed Yeah, you it. would have just, yeah, skipped past. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, so that was that was really for sort of, for more impact and so that people got the series because the subjects are very, um, the subjects are very different. They're very diverse, um, but they're all themed, the, the theme of positive change sort of underpins them all. Um, and also I wanted to have different subjects, you know, because people want to do different things, I suppose. Yes. Well, and um, so uh, have you, so having been in a corporate, a corporate yeah. publisher, have right. you, uh, you, you do everything, don't you, for this? Yeah. Yeah, pretty and ha- much. And has, yeah. has that been... Now I've got an editorial assistant, thank God. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. But you do Part-time. marketing, PR, <laughs> you can't, I think you kind of manage a lot of the authors well, in some ways, don't I you? I can't, I do, but I work with freelancers. You know, so I'm poor, I'm kind of the tip of the iceberg, but you're project managing all of that. Mm. So it's like you're the conductor, if you will. So, you know, I work with a freelance designer and, um, oh, you know, someone does our website. And if we're doing audio books, we'll work with a studio and a producer. And, and, um, and I assume that your job is, is, I mean, it's incredibly wide ranging, but I assume it's made easier if you're working with someone you like. Yeah. And you, you like all, I mean, presumably that's a oh, principal yeah. criteria for this, which may not be the case in other publishing. I don't know. What, the people that I work with? Well, the, no, the, the, the authors. Oh, the authors, yeah. Yes, but yeah, I mean, that so might not is... be the case if you're in a bigger, so it's your, it is yes. your baby and you can therefore control it. Yes, so when, if you're in a bigger publishing house, you're, you're, well, I suppose, you know, you might be the commissioning editor, so it's, it's a similar idea of, you know, you're approaching authors or, you know, responding to proposals. But also, a lot of the time, you're given, author, you know, you're presented with an author in a book and just told to sort of make it work yeah. and publish it and edit it. Um, I am very fortunate, and this is part of the reason I continue to do this, is because I get to meet the most interesting people. And not all of them I'll work with, but just by coming down to the lectures, listening to the talks, you're hearing stories and presentations that you wouldn't, you know. Yes. I, yeah. would, ne- I would never have come across them myself. Are you a strict editor? 
very strict, Charlie. Right. No, yeah. but I mean, you know, like I, a school because mistress. I mean, presumably yeah. people yeah. are coming to you in order to make sure that you they get the best product. I mean, they want their book to be amazing. So yeah, well, more often than not, I go to them with an idea because right. they're not writers and they're not authors and they're not even thinking about books because they're out there on the front line doing whatever it is they do. Mm. Haircuts for the homeless. We've yes. just heard about, for example. So he isn't thinking about writing a book. Um, I would process the talk. And then there's, that's the creative stage of it. I'll come up with a book idea or concept based on what I've heard in the talk, or it might be a single idea, or it might be the subject, you know, their area of expertise, and then think about how that might work as a book and what that book might be. And then more often than not, I'll present it to them. Yes. Um, I mean, it's really interesting process not, to get yeah. so 15 books out of people who aren't writers. Well... Yeah, it's really hard. And also, 15 books out of people who are really fucking busy. Yes. You know? And yeah. actually, they're all doing the good work. Yes. So actually, I don't want them to stop doing the good work. Um, so actually, well, we've now, I've now got a process in place where I sort of make it easy for them to get it down. Yes. Which is, for example, um, don't write for everyone. You know, just have one person in mind when you write. And that person is interested in what you've done so say so you've put on the festival you know so they've bound it up to you after your talk they want to know all about it they want to know how you did it you know how yes. you felt and they're asking tons of questions um and you're talking them through it yes you know in a way that's accessible and you know they're enthusiastic so your answers are upbeat and positive you know so the language and the tone of the books is very yeah positive and accessible and engaging um, because we want the books to be, a lot of it is about um, distilling sometimes quite complicated ideas into, into yeah. a and do you think that version. they? Do you think that one of the reasons... But not in a patronising way. No, of course not. Because our audience are very smart. Yes. So it's kind of that mix of, yeah, dealing with sort of complicated ideas but presenting them in an in a accessible way. Because self-help books, and I know you're not self-help books, but can be unbelievably boring because when yeah. you've read the back of them, you, you don't need yeah. to read any more. Yeah. But, but uh, actually, do you think, yeah. I mean, are you, so I had a, a, an odd experience with publishing our book in that Random House did it, Square Peg, and oh, yeah. they were, you know, they, they were lovely, lovely, amazing, but I felt like they spent a lot of money on it yeah. with an illustrator and a photographer and a cloth bound thing and a thing to hold the end leaves and then they didn't really do anything. Do yeah. And I didn't really care because I wasn't trying to make my living out of it. I was so pleased to have a book. That was all yeah. I needed well, to do. Well, and also that wasn't but, really your job to no, but, sell it No, but, but it was shows. very odd. But do you, do you think that, and I think that, I, you know, clearly a lot of authors and, and bands have the same thing with record labels. Do you feel like this is exactly where you wanted to end up? Creative, small, yes. in control? Yeah. I think so. And working with interesting people. Mm. Having the opportunity to sort of meet with, you know, very highly creative people and also have access to them. Yeah, you know? for, I mean, from an outsider's point of view, it seems like the dream job. Yeah. If you're a publisher. I don't know. No, it is. I'm, yeah, I, I wouldn't have. I mean, the first three years were like full on and hard work. And I yeah. wouldn't have continued to do it if... There wasn't something. There wasn't the passion, yeah. Well, and also I think there's always been a little a voice in the back of my head just sort of saying, keep, you know, keep going. It's, yes. it's worth... And yeah. also, and then what's great is when that's affirmed by people 
liking the books yes. and buying the books, which is kind of that validation. It's like, oh God, thank God, you know, my instinct was yes. right. Yeah, oh, oh, there's God. nothing more depressing when that happens. Yeah. Great, okay, well, but, um, the okay. bell's gone. We've got to go. Yeah, I know, the, <laughs> the class, the school bell's gone. <laughs> On the way home, um, we're all fairly knackered, as inevitably you are, after a weekend of, of endless conversation and good food and probably a bit too much wine and beer and some great music. Um, but I wanted to just get my some of my um, friends' thoughts down on this um, recorder. And so I spoke to Hugo Ross, who was in the back of my car, and, and asked him for one or two of his observations. I tried to talk to Tara, my daughter, who was in the front of the car, but she said she was too tired to speak, which is absolutely fair enough. But Hugo actually won a ticket for sending in a, a, a film and... One of the speakers, I think, or one of the other guests, very generously funded his ticket. So I was particularly interested to hear what he had to say. What do you really enjoy about it? The ceremony, I think, more than anything. Um, for a long time, I've been, I've been thinking about maybe joining these like creative incubators um, and and uh, hackathons in London. Um, but for whatever reason, I haven't got myself down to any of those. So I think the do lectures really satisfied that ambition to get get within a group of ambitious creatives, um, multidisciplined, and just basically just chat a lot of shit. But we weren't there on the first night. But someone said that almost the first thing that you did was um, sit down and eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had lunch, bowl of uh, pretty tasty homemade tomato soup. Um, yeah, and it was really nice. That it was it was quite. Um, quite nervy for me because I was there on my own at that point and I didn't really know anyone. Um, I'm probably, the demographic was probably, you know, 10, 15 years older than me and most of them, you know, were, were midway through their professional career and had a, uh, had a family life, that, um, young children, etc, etc. So I think thanks to the food, I was able to sit down with a, with a group of people that I hadn't, you know, hadn't never met before and was, was felt more comfortable to introduce myself. And everyone was, was, was really friendly. And, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Who was the person who you enjoyed chatting to most? I mean, was it a speaker or was it I think another I, guest? I think or? I most enjoyed chatting to um, a chap called LG who just closed, recently closed his, um, uh, his creative agency in London called Five Foot Six. And uh, I, got to, I got speaking to him uh, almost immediately in the taxi from Clunderwind Station to, Gard to Cardigan Bay. He is really lovely, like sort of unassuming, um, you know, uh, 45-year-old guy, father of one, uh, lives in East London, and uh, it, was, it was lovely to chat to him about his experiences um, owning, uh, no, sorry, founding, running, and now closing a, a creative agency, agency in London. Did you go on the factory visit to yeah, the Hyatt oh, Denim? Yeah, so, and so what was I, that like? I went, to, I went to the Hyatt Denim factory with David and about 15 other guests. It was really cool. Uh, David sort of talked uh, about how his company is binary, how there, there's a there's a denim factory and there's a marketing factory or an ideas factory, a story, the story factory. And it was really nice to him make that distinction. Uh, and it was also really nice to hear him uh, to hear his honesty. He said, "Listen, I don't know, I don't know as much as I perhaps should do uh, about how the jeans are made, and I'm not in charge of the factory per se. I let I let the you know the factory manager um, 
you know, run all that side of things. I take care of I take care of the marketing side of things, and it was kind of cool to hear him, you know, make that distinction number one, and then be honest number two. And it was cool to get uh, in and amongst the, the quality product. Um, and yeah, I'm really into sort of fashion manufacturing. So I really I really enjoyed it. I mean, I th I think for me, I really liked all the people. I mean, I met some you know interesting people who I'd heard of, I met some interesting people I hadn't heard of, and I met a lot of genuinely sort of interested people. Um, also, the food was amazing, and the vibe is very nice. I mean, it's so, it is so superbly friendly, and you have to say the setting is amazing as well. Yeah, the setting They've just done the whole, the whole feel, I think, and vibe of their farm is, is just bang on. It's effortless as well. It's, it's very effortless, it's very low-key, but it's extremely considered, mm -hmm. but not in any way contrived to be my feeling. Yeah. So that's it from um, episode one of the Do Lectures special on my Mavericks podcast. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've got loads more material, so uh, my editor, Jim Friend, and I are going to try and put something together. Um, I had an amazing weekend. I am pretty knackered today. Maybe I've said that. That's a reflection of how knackered I am. But thank you so much for um, joining me today. And um, I look forward to seeing you very, very soon. Thank you. Bye.